HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org. This week on Meet and 3, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they, they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food. And so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Katema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine and makeup. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Winifred Bird, who is a writer, translator, lifelong cook, and lover of plants based in Northern Illinois. Winnie just published a fabulous book called Eating Wild Japan, tracking the culture of forage foods with a guide to plants and recipes from Stonebridge Press. When we talk about Japanese cuisine, we tend to think of dishes like sushi, ramen, and kaiseki without considering enough about native ingredients that play an important role in Japanese food culture. One of the most important ingredients is sansai, or edible white plants. Since two-thirds of Japanese um, total land area is forested, uh, so you can find amazing seasonal edible plants throughout Japan. And Winnie is one of the very few people who discovered the charm of sansai and wrote about the book about it in English based on her experience living in Japan for nine years. So today we'll discuss Winnie's eventful life in Japan, what sansai is, why sansai is so important in Japanese food culture, delicious sansai dishes that you should not miss at Japanese restaurants or in Japan, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to uh, Stitch, iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Winifred Bird. Hello, Winnie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So, how are you doing? Great. It's a beautiful spring day, so I'm feeling pretty good. Right. So, happy for the plants, too. So, first of all, so where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Um, so, I was born in Philadelphia, um, but my parents moved to San Francisco when I was about a year old. Um, so I, I grew up in San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I had an interesting 
uh, way of eating as a child, I think, because my parents were divorced. Uh, they got divorced when I was about two. And my father was a total meat lover from the Midwest. Um, he loved, you know, steak and potatoes and frozen vegetables and mayonnaise and white bread. Um, and that's what he would feed me when I was with him every other week. And then when I was with my mom and my stepdad, um, my mom has been a strict vegetarian for, gosh, over 40 years now, um, and totally into health food, lots of vegetables, brown rice, um, beans, tofu. So a total, totally different way of eating. So I think that um, made me a very flexible eater to this day um, and, and maybe made it easier to move to a foreign country and kind of adapt to their way of eating as well. Mm. So which one did you like when you were little? <laughs> um, I liked both of them. Um, I remember my dad's, uh, you know, he would, he would put the steak in the oven over like on a rack over the piece of white bread so that like the white bread would stoke, soak up the drippings. And like, <laughs> I, used to, I used to love things like that. Or like he would mix um, his salad dressing. He would mix ketchup and mayonnaise together <laughs> to mm. make salad dressing uh, for iceberg lettuce. So as a kid, like I liked that kind of thing, but over mm. time I leaned more towards my mom's way of cooking and, my mom was really the one, the person who taught me to cook. Mm. She always let me spend time with her in the kitchen ever since I can remember, really, as a really small child. Um, she would let me pick recipes to try out together. And, um, you know, she always made me feel comfortable cooking with her. So I have her to thank, I think, for mm. my love of cooking today. Right. Wow, lucky you. So I had to steal your dad's trick of bread and steak at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want like a, a real mid Midwestern nostalgic meal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, so you spent nine years in Japan from 2005 to 2014. So why and where did you live in Japan? Um, so I moved to Japan in 2005 um, after meeting my husband. He, we weren't married at the time. So um, we were both traveling. I was, uh, after college, I was traveling around the United States and Canada um, visiting different farms because I was interested in agriculture and I thought maybe I wanted to have my own farm in the future. Uh, and he was living uh, in Canada at the time um, off on an island off of Vancouver studying carpentry and post and beam construction. Um, which he went on to make a profession of. Um, so I ended up at that same island on the same farm he was working at, and we met and, and started dating and eventually moved back to Japan together. Um, hmm. I hadn't had any connection with Japan up till that point or the Japanese language. I never thought it would be a place that I would visit. Um, but I figured I like to travel and I figured, why not, you know, <laughs> why not try it out? So I, I um, started learning Japanese and, and then moved there with him. And we ended up staying there for nine years. Um, and yeah, I just, I continued to learn the language and, and got more and more um, involved with, with culture and, and working there. And um, so first we lived in Matsuzaka, in Mie Prefecture for about a year. Um, and then we moved down to a place called Mihamacho in Southern Mie Prefecture. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with that place. Um, no, I'm not, I, I understand <laughs> the Mie Prefecture, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's in Kyoto, but no, I'm not that specifically familiar with that, that area. Sure, yeah, so Mihamacho is like, straight if you go straight south through the mountains from Kyoto um, I can't remember how many hours several hours um, down to the coast there's kind of a the key peninsula down below uh, Kyoto and Osaka 
and it's a quite rural and remote area. Um, when I was living, I think they've built some new roads, but when I was living there, it would take about 10 hours driving to get to Tokyo. And there wasn't like a Shinkansen or anything. So it was a, a pretty interesting uh, rural part of Japan in between um, Kumanoshi and Shingushi in Wakayama. Um, and so it was right on the Kumano Kodo, which is an ancient pilgrimage route that's become quite popular for travelers in recent years. Um, they, you know, now you can do these kind of uh, walking tours through along stone paths through the more, uh, mountains. Um, and I was living right in that area. So a lot of beautiful natural scenery and ancient culture um, that I was able to, to start to learn about. Um, and also uh, start to learn about um, more about Japanese food culture. Uh, it was a citrus growing region, um, but also also it was really the first rural area I was living in. So I learned about um, how to make tea. One of my neighbors took me up into the mountains with her to her old village uh, with her siblings once, and we picked tea and, and made bancha over a fire, roasted tea. And um, experiences like that were just really kind of new and eye-opening to me. Um, and then from there, we moved to uh, Matsumoto in Nagano Prefecture, which is um, kind of near the Japan Alps. Um, so I was on the outskirts of Matsumoto, which is a great city, um, lots of art and culture and organic farming and um, things like that. So I was living, uh, so Matsumoto is kind of in a, a valley or a basin with mountains on either side. And I was living up right in the foothills of the of the mountains uh, in an apple growing area. So lots of Fuji uh, apple orchards. Uh, most of my neighbors grew apples and rice and vegetables. And um, yeah, and my husband and I, our ex-husband and I actually had a, a rice paddy um, and a wheat field and a vegetable field. So we had a, uh, <laughs> quite a lot going on. Right. But it's like, uh, according to your book, there's there are only like 80 households in the area where you stayed and you're surrounded by all those amazing uh, nature. So, yeah. yeah. So what, how, well, um, I, and what, what did you do during your stay in Japan in this, you know, you really obviously so, had a very um, advanced experience of Japanese culture. I, I started out teaching English. Um, you know, I didn't have any specialized skills. I didn't have, um, you know, advanced Japanese language skills by any means um, when I moved there. Um, so really the only job I could get was as an English teacher, which was great to be able to do that um, for a few years. And then gradually, as my Japanese improved, I began to do some freelance writing and I cut back on my teaching um, and started to do environmental journalism, um, writing for the Japan Times and different publications in the United States um, about Japanese uh, environmental issues. Um, so then eventually after I got married, I, I was able to stop teaching and do writing and farming full time. Um, and then towards the end of my time there, I also started to do some translation work, which I, I do a lot more of now back in the United States. Mm. So your environmental reporting. So is that something you used to do before you visited Japan? No, it wasn't. Um, I, I have always loved writing, um, but I never did it as a job until until I moved there. Um, so yeah, I just, just kind of learned on the job, <laughs> Learn, mm. learning Japanese language and how to be a, a journalist. Um, right. Well, but, you know, you don't just suddenly decide to pick a, a theme like environment <laughs> preservation. So is this something you got inspired while you were in Japan? Um, no, I, I've always been very concerned about um, environmental issues and our relationship with nature. Um, growing up 
in San Francisco, which is a, a pretty liberal city, I think it was just taken for granted that you would be concerned about the environment. Um, mm. And, um, you know, there was a drought, for example, in California when I was growing up. So we all learned about water conservation and, and climate change was starting to be an issue. So these were all things I, I cared about, as well as um, I was always interested in agriculture and rural culture um, and how people use the land. So when I went to Japan, those were issues I, I stayed interested in and, and then eventually was able to write about in addition to um, topics like um, the nuclear disaster and how that affected people's lives and, and um, how the fallout affected forests in Fukushima. I, I did some work about that that was was pretty interesting um and and some of the seawalls that were built um all sorts of different topics really mm, right so that that happened the whole nuclear disaster and the tsunami happened in 2011 so that was you had like four three four years of intense writing i assume on that yeah. subject yeah exactly um that was something i never expected to write about you know a nuclear energy or a nuclear fallout but it you know as it did for so many people it, it kind of came into my life and <laughs> changed a lot of things um so i i went up to fukushima a number of times and and um yeah just just saw firsthand how how it affected people's lives and and really disrupted the relationship with nature, the ability to even to go out into the woods and collect mushrooms or, or hunt wild boar or pick sansai, um, you know, people were no longer able to do that because nature became kind of the enemy. You never knew it, you know, it, it could make you sick now instead of being um, something that nourished you, it turned into something that was frightening and, and possibly harmful. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly it's, uh, you know, 10 years since then, but it's amazing how obsessively they, all those uh, areas, surrounded areas, um, cleaned up the environment. Even I heard uh, the air is cleaner than somewhere like New York City. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they're struggling with the, remove the image of somewhere contaminated. So hopefully we really understand how much improved or even cleaner than before, um, away from even natural environmental pollution. So, but anyway, so, uh, so how did you like life in Japan? Um, well, that's a hard question to answer, um, <laughs> because, you know, it was my experience of Japan was wrapped up in my own experiences personally and in my career. So of course there were ups and downs and things I loved and things that were hard for me um, to adjust to. But um, I think um, one of the things I loved about Japan was how, I guess I would say how dense it is culturally and, and in terms of nature and history. It's us, you know, a relatively small country, not not too much bigger than California, um, but there's so much packed into it. So every little town you go to, they have their own product that they're proud of and that you can sample, you know, um, and just so much variety as well, because the country is stretched out from north to south. You have all different natural habitats, all different kinds of plants and animals um, able to live there. Um, and then the history is so long in each of these places that you have the, this incredible depth of, of human uh, and natural experiences kind of interwoven um, over time, which is just makes it so fascinating to, to learn about and to, to be there. Mm, right. Even by hearing about, you know, the Mihamajo in Mie Prefecture, I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> you really know and the details. Probably, you know, you know Japan more intensely and that nine years gave you a very uh, good experience to capture the culture more than probably the average Japanese people. So, well, especially being, a, especially being a journalist because I really was able to travel to most of the country, just, you know, little towns all over Japan, except for Okinawa, I never got to go there. But aside from that, um, 
yeah, I, I had a chance to do a lot of traveling and a lot of um, meeting with a lot of really interesting people and scholars and, and ordinary people as well. Mm, right. Okay. So, um, so uh, your book is about Sansai, which we're going to more talk, talk about more deeply. But how did you get into, um, get introduced to Sansai or the edible white plants? Um, well, when I was living in Mie Prefecture, um, I would say that the main semi-wild plant I was uh, exposed to was um, takenoko, uh, bamboo shoots, which, uh, mosodake, which uh, really isn't a wild plant. It was introduced from China uh, several centuries ago and planted um, kind of like a farm crop, like a... a almost like uh, for, you know, how you would plant a, a forest uh, for, to harvest for timber. Well, you could also plant bamboo to harvest for shoots or for timber for use in construction and other uses. But these days, a lot of um, bamboo groves have kind of gone feral and been neglected, um, as have many types of farmland in Japan, but especially the bamboo groves. So uh, harvesting bamboo can be a bit like harvesting a wild plant, uh, you can find a neglected grove and, and uh, collect the bamboo from it. But uh, Mie Prefecture has such a warm climate that even in, even in winter, you can be eating from your garden. I remember picking peppers on Christmas one year. Um, so that gives you a sense of how, how warm it is there, a kind of semi-tropical climate. Uh, so they don't have as great of a need for... Um, wild edible plants as some parts of northern Japan. So it was really when I moved to Nagano Prefecture uh, in the Japan Alps that I was I was able to learn about Japanese sansai culture uh, because um, people in the, the neighborhood where I lived really still um, ate a ton of wild edible plants, especially uh, in spring before uh, their gardens got growing, got, got going. So for example, they would have a hanami party every year to watch that, to enjoy the cherry blossom trees and everybody, it was like a kind of a picnic, a neighborhood picnic, and everybody would bring something they had made. And most of the things would be made with wild plants, um, you know, fiddlehead ferns or, um, you know, purslane or um, fuki. Uh, fukimiso, things like that. So, so for me, that was um, very a different, uh, different kind of culture that I hadn't really um, lived in before or experienced. And I started to learn some plants from my neighbors and just really fell in love with it. Mm, right. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, you published the eating wild. Japan, Choking the Culture of Forage Foods uh, with a Guide to Plants and Recipes, and that came out in March 2021, just came out. So, um, I mean, you kind of already answered the question, but why did you decide to write a book about everything about Sansai? Because it's another step further, right? Exactly. Yeah, I really, really <laughs> kind of got obsessed with it or I'm really interested in it because to me, um, sansai are, are just like the perfect window onto understanding human relationships with the land and with plants over time and how culture is tied to place and tied to non-human species. Um, and yeah, sansai is kind of the perfect intersection for me of, of food and culture and nature which were three topics I've always been very interested in. And as a journalist, I wasn't able to write, always write about them holistically. You know, we kind of had to separate, separate out certain issues. And if we were talking about an economic issue, you know, you would only focus on that or you were talking about nature. It would be about nature. It wouldn't have a recipe attached to it. So I wanted to write about these issues in a more interconnected way. Um, and, and this book was kind of a, a way for me to do that, um, as well as I noticed that there wasn't very good information available in English. There wasn't a good book 
on the topic that I could turn to. So I thought, oh, well, this is um, an important part of Japanese culture and Japanese food culture, and I would like um, more people to know about it. Um, so yeah, I decided to write that book. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you did. And your book is almost like, you know, as you said, you cover many issues, but naturally you get kind of drawn into the world of sansai and learning beyond just sansai. And uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, all right, so now let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into what exactly Sansa is. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market. Reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Fulton Stall Market is a nonprofit indoor public farmers market. It offers locally grown and produced healthy and affordable fresh food to the Seaport and Lower Manhattan community. Fulton Stall Market is a direct sales outlet for over 100 New York region farmers and small batch independent food producers. They have been operating as a public market to serve the Seaport community since 2015. While you shop at Fulton Stall Market, you can pick up a few guides from Escape Maker's informational kiosk. Escape Maker connects urbanites with local farm, winery, craft beverage, and culinary getaways within a day's drive or train ride of New York City. Learn about day trips from New York, where you can explore the best agritourism the region has to offer. Learn more at FultonStallMarket.org and EscapeMaker.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Winifred Bird, who is a writer, translator, lifelong cook, and lover of plants based in Northern Illinois. Winnie just published a very intriguing book called Eating White Japan, Tracking the Culture of Foraged Foods with a Guide to Plants and Recipes from Stonebridge Press. So, so let's talk about Sansai more specifically. So what is Sansai? Um, so as you say, Sansai is basically um, edible wild plants. Um, the, the characters for sansai are mountain and vegetables. So specifically, it refers to the edible wild plants that grow in the forests and mountains of Japan. But as, as you know, it has a much broader usage. The term has a much broader usage than that. So if you get a book about um, sansai, it's likely to include, um, you know, plants that grow around farm fields and plants that grow along rivers and, and essentially all kinds of edible wild plants, except for seaweed. Seaweed is not included in uh, the Japanese term sansai, but you might have things like um, chestnuts and walnuts and berries and, um, and things like that as well. Right. So what about it's available um, in the wild or even somewhere nearby in a farmland? That's a rough translation of sansai right it's a very broad coverage yes right and what do you think is the difference between japanese sansai and american edible white plants uh, maybe as species and also culturally right so first um in terms of which species are available um there are many similar many of the same plants grow in japan and the united states surprisingly and other parts of the world um so many of the uh, edible wild plants enjoyed in japan can be harvested and eaten um, in other countries for example i live in illinois northern illinois um, i was just out in the woods a few days ago picking essentially the equivalent of mitsuba um, which is honewort. It's a, a very closely related species that grows here. Um, Mitsuba is, um, is grown, cultivated in Japan as well, but you can also pick it, it wild. Um, it's delicious, um, kind of green, uh, leafy green herb, you might call it an herb. Um, uh, another example, similar example, ostrich, fi- uh, ostrich fern fiddleheads, uh, kogomi, um, a very popular sansai 
for uh, bright, brilliant green, delicious little um, curled up fiddleheads you can eat in spring. Um, and ostrich ferns grow very widely in woodlands and kind of moist areas across the eastern half of the United States. Um, so uh, some of those popular scents are available. Also, many of what we would consider weedy, weedier plants are found in many parts of the world. So, for example, uh, plantain, horsetail, watercress, um, daylily, uh, purslane, things like that uh, grow and are eaten in Japan as well as many other places. Um, ginkgo trees, wild walnuts, uh, some of these plants are introduced and even uh, considered invasive here in the United States while they're beloved in, in Japan, such as um, Japanese knotweed. Is, is a very invasive plant here in the United States. And it's uh, sometimes used, chefs will uh, use it kind of, it's, it's pretty sour. So people will use it kind of uh, as they use rhubarb here in the United States, where in Japan, it's more used as like a, a vegetable side dish. Um, wakame is extremely invasive in many parts of the world. And in Japan, it's uh, one of the most popular kinds of seaweed. Um, so those are some of the kind of widely available plants. Uh, then there are some that are more unique to Japan, as far as I know. Now, uh, it's always possible that they have been introduced in other uh, other countries, such as the United States, and I haven't <laughs> haven't yet heard about it. But for example, um, Ashitaba or Chishimazasa, which is a, a type of a wild uh, bamboo, um, Kajime, which is a type of seaweed. Koshiabara, uh, which is a tree that has leaves that people uh, enjoy in spring, um, even wasabi leaves. None of these plants I have been able to find or read about growing um, in the United States. They may grow in other parts of Asia, but um, but they have a, a smaller a smaller range. So you will have to either plant them or in your garden or go to Japan if you want hey. to, to try them. Mm, yeah, you mentioned uh, Ashitaba, and I heard it's uh, grown in Oshima, an island of Oshima in Japan, and uh, uh -huh. I heard there's a huge health benefit uh, from it, and I forgot what it is, but <laughs> there's like a one um, manufacturer make Ashitaba, harvest, and, you know, a lot of Ashitaba and made it into some uh, um, kind of herbal medicine. Um, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to um, be kind of health and energy giving and, and even a long time ago, I think people thought of it as like a, a plant that would give you eternal youthfulness, but now it's actually been proven to have um, uh, anti-aging properties. So as you mm -hmm. say, there's like a kind of boom these days, like ashtaba powder added to noodles or things like that. Right. Yeah. Well, somebody starts planting it in America. That could be a health boom. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, culturally, you know, like um, you, you mentioned in this, in your book too, but there's a, in Japan, sansai has been used as kind of medicinal plants and, you know, the Haruno no Nanaksa, that's the springtime. Um, there is a custom to eat rice porridge cooked with seven nourishing herbs on January 7th after eating so much of, uh, you know, New Year feast. And uh, it really gives a nice stomach rest and also, you know, all those herbs such as, I think, uh, Japanese radish and uh, turnip and Japanese parsley, all those things are good for your, you know, balancing your nutrition and resting your stomach. So, yeah, culturally, it's really, um, it, herb sansai is embedded in Japanese culture and from like for centuries and centuries. So that's one part. Yeah. Um, right. Right. So, um, well, in your book, you talk about how sansa used to be regarded as poor people's food in Japan. So how so and what has changed over time? Yeah. So um, sansa in Japan, I think, has always had a kind of double, dual image. Um, on the one hand, uh, these edible wild plants have always been beloved uh, as kind of a special, special foods to eat 
in spring that symbolized the seasons and nature. So the aristocracy would go out, um, you know, to pick uh, their favorite wild greens in the late winter and early, early spring and write poems about it and paint pictures. And so it has this very elegant and luxurious image. While at the same time, um, many uh, wild edible plants have been extremely important for surviving um, famines and not and not just surviving famines, but surviving everyday life in some of Japan's um, harsher environments, people, uh, especially like mountain villages, um, which are not so well suited to agriculture, especially before um, crops were improved to be more cold hardy and um, able to survive in, in different environments. So especially in the past, um, it, when there also when there weren't the same kind of um, networks to distribute food as we have today. Um, and people really had to rely on the foods they had in their specific village or, or immediate area. Uh, people would turn to the wild plants when their crops failed or when they didn't have enough, a big enough harvest, or even just to supplement their, their diet year round. Um, so both the wild greens that we've been talking about as well as some important starchy foods that would be a replacement uh, for rice. Um, for example, horse chestnuts were very important. Acorns, chest, regular chestnuts. Um, the rhizomes of bracken ferns are another important um, famine food in northern Japan. Um, and you can see this history um, in some of the, the older records. Uh, it, for example, I spent time in a, a town called Nishiwagamachi in Iwate Prefecture, and there's a, a, a record of a yearly record that was kept in this village for several centuries called the Chronicle of Sawauchi. Um, and Quite often, there is mention of people eating these various um, wild plants in order to, to survive. Um, and uh, guides were written uh, as to, to help people uh, correctly identify these plants when they needed them during famine times. Uh, for example, um, it, the most famous one is called Katemono. Um, it's a, a book written right at the turn of the 18th century, or early, um, sorry, early 1800s. It was published. Um, there was a, a very bad famine called the Tenmei Famine in the 1780s. Um, and this prompted the daimyo of, of um, Yonezawa domain, what is Yamagata today, to, um, he, he asked one of his um, his assistants to begin studying the wild plants and to write a book about it because there was, um, you know, people would eat the wrong things and get sick. And this was actually quite a problem. So um, he pulled together this collection of 80, uh, 80 useful plants in a book called Katemono um, that was published and distributed and apparently quite widely used um, after that to prevent, prevent um, future um starvation during during future famines so mm. they really were important to people in that way right well like i said earlier uh, so two-thirds of japanese land um is forested so it's a free resource and why not right and it, they're very nutritious because of just the concentrated um nutritional profile of sunset so yeah. yeah 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 it's been poor people's food because it was free but now Things changed, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Um, well, these days, right. So there are very few places in Japan where it, I think, if anywhere, it would be necessary to rely on sansai anymore. I think it's safe to say because um, food, we have good road networks and we really have, a, of course, a global food system today. So if you have a crop failure in one village, you can easily um, get usually get food in a in a wealthy nation like Japan. You can get food from other places. Um, so sansai have have really uh, become more of a, a luxury food, uh, but not 
not necessarily always a luxury. They are still important home in home style cooking in in rural areas as well, and then in in urban areas, um, they are symbolic of the countryside and of nature and and kind of fading relationships with um, with nature. I think so. People um, want to eat them to connect with their past and to connect with um, the rural parts of the country maybe um, having lost those connections in, in most parts of their life. Mm, right. Well, it's interesting you said that. And on the other hand, you know, the Kaisek chefs, I mean, Kaisek cuisine, thinks all, it's all about seasonality. And the Kaisek chefs chase um, seasonal sansai, which lasts only a few weeks or just very short period of time in many cases. So such as bamboo shoots and ginkgo nuts, they go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and also last week, um, my friend in Japan uploaded a photo of her favorite bamboo shoot rice, and mm. it's a celebration of spring. Yeah. So, yeah, so sunset is very important. It's like, um, yeah, the celebration of seasonality, which is very um, ubiquitous in Japanese food culture, and mm-hmm. even for home cooks and everybody. So, yeah, yeah right. So sunset is... You know, it's available, but it's almost, you know, seasonal event just beyond, you know, the food on your plate. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's one of the most potent symbols um, of that fleeting, the fleeting nature of the seasons and the annual cycle. Um, and it, it's so exciting to to wait for something to come into season, that's a, especially when it's a wild food that you, you can't entirely control in the way that you can with um, with farmed uh, foods. So you really, ha- there's a little bit of kind of de- dependency on, on nature and and, um, and to wait and anticipate the, for example, the fuki, fuki no to, to come up, poke up out of the, uh, snow <laughs> in the very early spring there's these little little yellow um uh, flower flower buds that pop up out of the snow and and you harvest them and um you know you can mix them in with miso they have a very a strong bitter flavor that really um kind of captures that early spring feeling and then they're gone very quickly they pass their peak and that's it for the rest of the year. So yeah, exactly as you say, they're um, they're very symbolic. Many many of these foods. And the Japanese people tend to appreciate that brevity, right? So if it's still lost too long, it's not as precious. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, like you know, for listeners who's really interested in tasting sansai, and there is a famous restaurant in Kyoto called Sojiki Nakahigashi. Um, which has two Michelin stars and the chef Hisao Nakahigashi literally goes to the mountains each morning mm. and to pick wild vegetables and flowers for his dishes of that evening. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why his restaurant is located high up in the mountains. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's a very special occasion thing. But if you look, even like supermarket in Japan, if you hit the right season, you can find a lot of sansai yeah. and... Uh, yeah, that's the fun part of Japanese culture. It's available too. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, going back to your earlier question about the cultural differences of um, eating edible wild plants in the United States, for example, versus in Japan, I think that is one of the most important um, differences is that the practice and the culture of of picking and eating those plants has never been interrupted in Japan uh, in the way that it was interrupted in the United States by colonialism and um, the the displacement of indigenous cultures that had these long, long relationships um, with with specific plants and um, how to prepare them and and preserve them. so our culture in the United States today, many people are reconnecting with these plants. And of course, indigenous cultures have always had those connections. But um, in, the, in the dominant culture, um, it, we often ha- are rediscovering edible wild plants and how to use them and how to identify them. Where in Japan, 
um, you have the sense that that history is unbroken and it's much more interwoven into culture for that reason, which was really beautiful to experience. Mm, right. Well, thanks for the long, long history of Japan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and your book consists of three parts. Um, first, a collection of essays on the culinary, cultural, and historical roles of several specific wild foods, which I really enjoyed reading that essays. And uh, the second one is an illustrated guide to important and common sansai, and a collection of recipes that introduce readers to classic Japanese sansai preparation. So your book is just all in, you know, three in one. I, I think it's really well um, structured too. So maybe can you give us some examples of delicious sansai um, that you can find in Japanese forests? Sure. I mean, there's so many <laughs> that it's hard, <laughs> hard to narrow it down. But um, a minute ago, I mentioned Chishimazasa, which is a kind of bamboo. Um, unlike the bamboo I mentioned earlier, which is really a, a crop, Chishimazasa is a, a wild bamboo. It grows in northern Japan in colder places in the mountains um, in Hokkaido and um, Tohoku regions. Um, it often grows in the understory of forests, um, beach forests, and other types as well. Um, and it's a very slender bamboo. Uh, so the shoots come out of the ground uh, at kind of at an angle. Um, and you would pick them, you know, within a, a day or two of when they start to emerge. Um, so I was able to do this in, I visited Akita Prefecture, Um and I went out into the forest with two um, two local people who know the, the area very well and who, who harvest chishimazasa every spring. And um, so you kind of snap them off at, at the base and they make this nice snapping sound. And, um, and then you take them back home and you eat, prepare them as, as quickly as possible. Um, one of the things with bamboo shoots, as well as many kinds of sansai, is that after you pick them, sometimes they their quality declines. They become more bitter or acrid tasting. So it's important to prepare them quickly after you pick them. Um, and you can uh, blanch them and then use use them in uh, the chishimazasa in various recipes, um, miso soup or um, uh, tempura, things like that. But my favorite was... Um, we got back, we had picked our, our bamboo shoots and um, my hosts uh, made a little fire in the hearth, the irori, and they set a, a little grill over the coals and we just grilled the bamboo shoots still in their outer sheath um, right over the fire for a few minutes and then peeled off that outer sheath and the the bamboo shoot inside was just perfectly kind of steam roasted and we'd sprinkled a little salt on it and and ate it just like that and it was so good uh, you know just so simple and um, beautiful and fresh uh, so that was one of my favorite uh, sansai memories I would say wow I'm jealous <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I have never tried that actually myself it's very, I think, regional, right? Because I don't see uh -huh. that Shimazasa in, yeah. in Tokyo usually. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a northern, you know, like a, if you go to like a hot spring village in Tohoku and that's right at the right season, you might be able to, to get that, you know, to have that served to you. But, but like so many of these foods, it really is, it's not just the food itself, but it's the experience, you know, the the setting of eating it um you know oftentimes you're in a special place where this plant grows or um you know so so all of that kind of feeds into the the flavor i think as well mm, right well the, the way you capture sunset experience is really interesting and what can Japanese people, like the majority of our audience, learn from the Japanese sansai eating culture? Um, I mean, I think it's really similar to what you can learn from cultures, from long established cultures of eating wild edible plants all around the world. 
um, which is really a deep connection to place over time um, and to plants, to non-human mm. species. Um, the way that these plants nourish us and we in turn protect them um, over over the course of centuries and kind of nurturing one another is um, it's a really, really different way of relating to nature and to the, the land we live on than I think um, is common today, of, of course, in urban cultures, but even in, in agricultural areas where we're used to, you know, completely transforming the place we live in and, and cultivating it for our own purpose. Um, when you mm. harvest these edible wild plants, um, you have to step back and watch nature very carefully um, to know uh, where the plants grow and how abundant they are, how many is okay to harvest and when, uh, what what your very local season is. Because sometimes we talk about seasons in a more generalized way, like spring, okay, that goes on for three months. And <laughs> but um, it really, the, the intricacies of the season vary uh, from place to place, you know? So each village will have its own seasonal calendar. Um, and you mm. really learn that through eating these plants and you really, um, you know, and it's also a very pleasurable way to do it because, it, you know, they're so delicious and it's so rewarding. So it's never feels like a job, you know, it never feels like a task to learn those things or to develop that relationship mm. with nature. Interesting. Because I'm thinking, uh, comparing, say, to, so I grow herbs and I feel like I'm connected to nature. But compared to picking sansai, which is experience, you are allowed to go into the big world of nature and you feel kind of awe and respect and gratitude to be able to pick that specific plant. Instead of me, I, I put the seeds on the ground and it's me. I'm supposed to pick this and eat it. So yeah. it's a completely different mindset, I guess. Yeah, it is. And I also love gardening um, as well. So I think, yeah, obviously you can learn and enjoy and have a relationship with plants that way as well. But as you say, um, it is a different kind of relationship. Um, and it, it really makes, it does make you realize that we are part of the natural world. You know, we are part of this habitat and we eat from it and, um, and we don't necessarily always have to, um, you know, dig up the land and plant something. We can also be fed fed by by the natural habitat. So that's uh, right. Yeah. So Sansai reminds us of how much you should think of this feeling of entitlement. We are not entitled. We just decided to be that way, but it's not. Right. So, and in Japan, and uh, the word Satoyama. Uh, has been getting attention lately. So what is Satoyama and how does it relate to Sansai? Um, so Satoyama has kind of a, several, there's, I think there's a couple different ways that the word is used. Uh, more, more, most specifically, it refers to a type of forest, usually surrounding farming villages that people would use intensively um, over the years, harvesting different resources from it, and yet not turning it into a plantation forest. So it was still semi-natural, um, but yet um, shaped by the ways people used it. For example, to harvest charcoal, wood to turn into charcoal, to harvest kindling, firewood, to harvest sansai, um, and, and many other resources. Um, so that uh, kind of changes the ecosystem of the forest um, in comparison to the wilder uh, forest that historically existed further away from the village. So you can imagine kind of concentric circles with the, the farmland and the village in the center and the Satoyama surrounding it as a kind of um, intermediary, uh, like semi-natural semi area. And then beyond that, the more wild uh, forest. So in terms of how it relates to Sansai, um, a lot of 
Satayama woodlands are deciduous, um, so the leaves fall in the in the in the autumn, and then in spring they're very open and sunny for that reason. Um, so the sun hits the forest floor, and you get all sorts of different um, sansai lovely edible things growing growing on the forest floor and if and people manage these areas to be as abundant as possible so encouraging the plants that they want to grow there um, while using them um, whereas there's different types of plants that grow out in the more wild forests um, which can sometimes be a little darker um, people don't pick up the debris off the, the forest floor as much. And of course, I, I'm using the present tense, but most Satayama woodlands have, have um, disappeared from Japan, sadly enough, because um, they were very intimately tied with a certain way of life uh, in the past in rural Japan. And that changed drastically throughout the 20th century. Um, and also there were certain government programs that encouraged people to cut down satayama and plant them with, um, say, uh, Japanese cedar and cypress plantations, um, which have now, <laughs> again, been neglected. So there's many. Currently, there's a lot of problems in Japan's um, forest land, uh, and it's difficult to find kind of this old-fashioned satayama, and people um, idealize it a bit, I think, for that reason. And yet it really was, I think, a, a beautiful and a, a valuable part of of um, nature. Mm. And, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So in, in a way, um, Satayama is important and it's been a part of Japanese uh, culture, uh, life of everybody. But then Sansai probably is kind of a reminder of the importance of Satayama because without Satayama, there's no Sansai. Well, I mean, there are Sansai that grow right in the village and there are Sansai that grow in as we talked about before, you know, uh, since the word is used so broadly, mm-hmm. uh, sansai do grow in all types of, of habitats. So right. satayama is one special habitat that, that happened to have a lot of um, plants that people loved and enjoyed, I think. Right. So the more narrow definition, that's the sansai I just mentioned. But I think you're right. So, yeah, it's like anything uh, you can pick up out of wild versus cultivated <laughs> <laughs> plants. Right, right, right. Yeah, and in your book, you discuss also discuss uh, issues that are risking the continuation of Japanese sansai eating culture. So, what are these issues? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as I said, the the culture of enjoying sansai is still strong in Japan, which is wonderful. Um, but it's changing, I think, um, for many different reasons. And, and there is some concern that the depth of knowledge, I think, is growing, is um, thinning a little bit. And the depth of connection is, is thinning in some ways. So you can kind of divide the threats into two different categories, I would say. One being um, threats to plants themselves. Um, so this includes... Um, climate change and habitat loss, um, soil pollution, water pollution. In Japan, the nuclear disaster um, caused some soil pollution that, um, as I mentioned before, that that has changed the ways that people, uh, changed the plants that people are able to to use um, and harvest. Also, a really big one is the way that people farm. Um, The use of agrochemicals um, often harms the wild plants that live around the margins of of farming communities and live around paddy fields and live um you know use the uh, irrigation water so in the past people didn't use when before people used agrochemicals uh many (laughs) there was a great a much greater diversity of of edible wild plants in uh, in in um, in and around farms, um, that has changed. There's a very high agrochemical use in Japan, and that has affected the the plants that are available um, in rural communities. Also, overuse. People sometimes take too much, too many of these plants. Um, katakuri, for example, is one example. Is one example um is little flowers that people used to use the roots to make a kind of starch uh, from 
and they're very vulnerable to overharvest. So almost no one these days picks katakuri anymore, I think. Um, mm. Sometimes people use the leaves and the flowers, but um, so those are some of the threats to plants. And then on the other hand, you have threats to the culture of using them and its continuation and the knowledge, the kind of living knowledge about these plants and how to use them, um, prepare them. So much of this knowledge is held by people in, in small mountain villages, which uh, as many listeners may know, are facing a crisis of aging and urbanization. People are flowing out to the cities because uh, to get, you know, to get jobs and have a more convenient life. So many small villages and hamlets in the mountains are just kind of disappearing. Uh, and as they disappear, that knowledge goes with them. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can just write down in a book. It's not, you know, you can write down the generalized knowledge about these plants, but the specific knowledge about where they grow in that specific place, um, you know, what the seasons are like, uh, specific ways of preparing them that might be very local. Um, all of those things rely on, on um, live. it's kind of a living knowledge that people hand down from generation to generation. Um, and then uh, another threat is the, um, violence or um, repression of indigenous culture uh, in, in Japan's case, uh, the Ainu culture in Hokkaido. Um, the Ainu people uh, have a very extensive uh, culture of using uh, wild plants and hunting as well that um, in the, the 1900s and, and 20th century was, was really um, repressed and uh, a, a lot of it was was lost when uh, Hokkaido was settled by by uh, Japanese people from Honshu um, and then there's been a resurgence of this culture in the past several decades so thankfully people are documenting some of this indigenous knowledge and reviving it um, there in Hokkaido mm, right Okay, so uh, hopefully, and um, you know, the sansai really, I think, is a representative of culture and nature, and that's they're very important. And I'm so glad you wrote the book. So, uh, so where can we buy your book? Um, well, if you are in the United States, I encourage you to check out bookshop.org. Uh, if you'd like to buy a copy online, that's a online platform that supports independent bookstores. Um, you can also buy it through Amazon, of course, uh, which may be your best option if you are outside of the United States. Uh, in Japan, for example, I have heard it was spotted at Kinokuniya Bookstore in Tokyo. Um, but And it is uh, Stonebridge Press, the publisher of this book. Um, their books are distributed to a number of bookstores in Japan, but unfortunately, I don't know which specific bookstores. Um, so you may find it on the shelves there. Otherwise, uh, you'll have to go online. You can also get a, an e-book version, but I encourage you to try to get the, the um, hard copy, the paper version. It has beautiful illustrations by Paul Pointer uh, of, of plants and some of the people I met during my travels. So hey. Yeah, I really enjoy that cute, a very kind of like uh, healing illustrations. That's a big part of the book. I forgot to say that. Uh -huh. Right. So this is a book is again, uh, Eating Wild Japan, tracking the culture of forest foods with guide to plants and recipes from Stonebridge Press. So hopefully uh, you're going to get a copy and enjoy that. And so where can we find your updates online and social media? Um. Well, my website is www.winifredbird.com. You can always stop by there. Um, but really, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, Winnie Bird Words is my handle. I post a lot of pictures of plants and food. <laughs> so <laughs> if you like that kind of thing, check it out. Right. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today, Winnie. Thank you. It was wonderful talking with you.
Alright, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amanda Wang, and we'll take a spring break for a few weeks, so I will see you in the first week of May, and thank you for listening. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.